We simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center. And this week, we are hosting Julie Axelrod, who is Director of Litigation here at the Center. And she does a variety of litigation-related things here, including Freedom of Information Act lawsuits, that sort of thing. But what she's pioneered is using what's called the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, to sue government agencies over not doing environmental impact statements for proposed changes in immigration, which is required by the law because they have an effect on population as a whole, the number of people who are here, and other effects that would clearly seem to warrant environmental impact statements, and yet they're almost never done. And one of the lawsuits, recently there was a ruling, unfortunately a negative ruling, from federal court, and so we're going to talk about what happened in that particular case, but then sort of more broadly, what is this issue of using the NEPA law to try to change or at least clarify immigration policy decisions? So, Julie, thanks for joining us, and introduce yourself a little bit, and then we can talk about what this issue is of suing over NEPA, and then what happened in this most recent case. Okay, sure. Thank you, Mark. So I'm Julie Axrod. I am currently the Director of Litigation at the Center here. I served in the Trump administration EPA for a while at the end as a policy advisor on NEPA compliance. And even before then, I've been working on this issue, which has been actually discussed for decades because the environmental movement, when it first came to fruition in the 70s was actually extremely concerned about population growth. It recognized at the time that population growth would exacerbate every environmental problem that they were worried about. So pollution, clean air, the destruction of habitats, you know, any environmental problem basically is increased by population growth because what the environmental movement was originally about was man's relationship with the earth. And so in 1970, they passed a law called the National Environmental Policy Act, and it was signed by Richard Nixon. It was pretty overwhelmingly passed. And it's a very broad law, but what it was designed to do was to make all the federal agencies think about the environmental consequences of their actions before they were carried out. Not every tiny action, but if they were going to do something that had a big consequence on the environment, they had to think about what the environmental 
impacts were. It doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means you have to think about it first. And another consideration that the writers of the bill had in mind was that they realized that the government agencies sometimes work at cross purposes when it comes to the environmental issues. So the Forest Service will be trying to cut something down and and preserve a place, and then the Army Corps of Engineers will be trying to build in the same place. So they wanted a comprehensive way of looking at the environmental impacts so that the agencies have a coherent environmental policy. And it was a rather broad law, but it became developed in terms of how it's carried out, mostly through case law. So environmental groups would sue in the 70s, and there's a big case called Calvert Cliffs in the D.C. Circuit, which basically said, this is not voluntary. You have to do it. The law says you must do environmental analysis to the fullest extent of the law. So, you know, you can't just say, well, what we're doing doesn't impact the environment, so we're just not going to do it. It had teeth, basically, since then. The other thing that the statute NEPA did was it created something called the Council for Environmental Quality, which is an executive office in the White House. And it's in charge of implementing NEPA for, for all the agencies. So in 1978, they passed their first NEPA regulations. This was through whom? Through EPA? The, or? the Council for oh, Environmental Quality. So they Quality. can issue their own regulations? They can promulgate regulations? So they, well, so they promulgate regulations, yes. And their regulations are a bit different from when an agency does a regulation because it's almost like they write the law that the agencies use because the law is broad. The CEQ puts some shape to it with their regulations, and then they mandate every agency pass their own NEPA procedures or regulations. Some of them are put into the CFR, the Code of Federal Regulations. Some of them are not. They do encourage that. When you pass a law that has more details, you just regulate on the law. In, in NEPA, the agencies regulate on the CEQ's regulations. I see. Okay. So they passed those first in 1978, and they mentioned things like you had to pay attention to indirect effects. You had to pay attention to growth-inducing effects because, again, population considerations were paramount when NEPA was passed. In fact, it even says right in the preamble the concerns of population growth are the major consideration of NEPA. This is the preamble to the bill. The preamble words, to the it's bill. It's not even like the bill. legislative it's history. Not legislative it says history. it right there. It says it right there. Population growth is its first named concern. Right. So they had those regulations for 40 years without change. The Trump administration actually changed them in CEQ. So this is a very timely issue right now because the government is rethinking them. Now, the Biden administration has said, we're going to rethink that regulation that was just passed. The CEQ's new regulations were finalized in 2020. And basically, they like some of it, and they don't like some of it in the Biden administration. Now, the environmental organizations really don't like it at all. I would say probably the administration is is on board with some of it. Some of the new regulations were updating it to 
to just be more in line with practice as it developed by the agencies over the years. But for the purposes of the lawsuits, right? they were obviously based on the pre-existing regulations. Yes. So the suit was against the one that had the recent development yes. was against DHS, right? Is Homeland Security, are they doing environmental impact statements? Uh, that, no, they okay. don't do anything at all. So our first suit, which was Whitewater Draw versus DHS, we had some environmental groups, we had some ranchers on the border, and we sued- As plaintiffs. As plaintiffs, right. yes. And we sued over the NEPA procedures, which had been redone in 2014 last. So that was in accordance with the fact that under CEQ's rules, every agency must have NEPA procedures. Now, DHS promulgated those of its own. Because it was a new agency, they were relatively new. And they were updated a bit in 2014. So we sued in 2016 over those. And what specifically? Right. So we what sued was the claim? in, we had a few claims. One of the claims was that the NEPA procedures were arbitrary and capricious because they completely ignore immigration. We also sued over it as applied because there were a few more recent regulations where they cited a categorical exclusion, which didn't really mention immigration, in response to some commenters in the past 10 years or so that's starting to comment on the lack of NEPA analysis. So this came from the public. And until called out on it in the public, they just ignored the issue altogether. So they did start to cite categorical exclusions saying, well, this new change, this program, doesn't change the existing environmental outcome of the program. Well, I mean, they never did analysis in the first program. So, so how would I mean, they know? Just to clarify for listeners, mm -hmm. this categorical exclusion idea, they don't, in other words, it's an escape hatch, yeah. meaning that they don't have to do an environmental impact statement. So one of the things that agencies do in their NEPA procedures as regulated by CEQ is they can create exemptions for themselves where they say, well, this category of actions usually won't have an environmental impact. We don't have to do a full-blown NEPA analysis for that. Now, any action that doesn't fit into a categorical exclusion, they will have to do what's called an environmental analysis, which is sort of your first level of review. That's where you look and you do a more basic analysis and you say, will this have impacts? And if they decide it will, they do what's called an environmental impact statement, which is a larger analysis. And if they decide they don't, they issue a finding of significant impact. So with immigration, they do nothing. They don't. They don't, they don't even say that it's excluded. They've just ignored it altogether, they basically. They just ignore it altogether. I mean, now they'll usually cite one of the categorical exclusions that doesn't really fit. Once people started bringing it up, they started justifying it in their regulations. For instance, the H-1B program, they said something like, well, there's too much speculation in immigration, so we just, we just don't have to. Well, that's not how NEPA is. You have to take some kind of forecast. If you knew exactly what the environmental impact was going to be already, we wouldn't have NEPA because right. everyone would already be aware. So they're basically saying we think it would be hard, so we don't want to. And the truth is it wouldn't even be that hard. It's relatively easy given all the data they have to conduct the kind of, well, this is going to happen with population growth. We see that the immigrants go to this area. There'll be more infrastructure needs here. I mean, the truth is they could do it as easily as 
many environmental impacts they do. And they do environmental analysis for all sorts of much, much smaller things. Like if you want a permit to graze 50 cattle, you have to do some sort of environmental setup. The other claim we did was in 2014, they did an analysis of their own response to the 2014 border crisis, which it just shows how arbitrary their whole attitude is. You mean they did an environmental analysis? They did an environmental analysis of their response to the the unaccompanied unaccompanied minors coming in. And and it was a really terrible one. I mean, they basically said, well, we're going to put them in a building that's already built so there won't be any (laughs) environmental impact. Now, that just, it made no sense because what about is your response going to work? It was sort of like they just assumed that no matter what they did, uh, people would just keep coming and they'd be able to deal with it with no environmental consequences. Now, none of that is true. If people come in, once they leave the center, they're still here. Kind of crazy to say that 50,000 people living in a detention center have environmental impacts because they live in a detention center here. But once they leave, they are apparently non-impactful. People. So so challenging that so kind of bogus analysis well. was part of the lawsuit. Yes. Yeah. And so we had some ranchers who literally lived right on the border, and they see how the policies affect them. When DACA came around afterwards, they saw more people come. They saw a big drop-off when Trump got elected. So, I mean, they see daily that the illegal immigration responds to government incentives and of course, legal immigration does. I mean, sure. you, the, the government is literally letting people come in, bringing them into the country by their permission. So the idea that this isn't governmental action is, is just crazy. I mean, we have NEPA analysis where the government maybe provides some funding, but it's mostly private activity. I mean, it's just it's as close to the meaning of the statute as you could get. You could hardly get more appropriate for NEPA than immigration programs. So what happened at the district court level? At the district court level, the judge who was in the Southern District of California decided that the NEPA procedures were not final and binding, and therefore we couldn't sue on them at all. And that's really against longstanding practice in administrative law the Supreme Court has laid it out that a regulation or anything that has gone through all the stages and is binding on the agency, that that's something you can sue on under in the other words, it's final even if they act. haven't used the word final well, in, in describing Well, in our it. case, they've used the word final. Okay. So what happened was they passed these procedures and they were mandated. They didn't have a choice. You know, they passed them. They put them through notice and comment. They decided to only put them in the Federal Register instead of the Code of Federal Regulations, but it doesn't really matter. They're still binding on them. They created the parameters. They created a list of categorical exclusions for themselves to use, which under Ninth Circuit precedent is considered a final action. Like, that's it. Parts of the the procedures are final actions. So the idea that the whole procedure had no final actions in it was pretty crazy. So it was basically just a pretext by the... Yes, I mean... District court judge to throw the case out? You know, I mean, the GOJ argued that. 
the procedures are called the instruction manual. Now it doesn't really matter what you call them. They promulgated them in 2014. They put them through notice and comment. That There was a draft notice and comment, and then they promulgated them as final, which they labeled them final. And then the CEQ approved them, and they don't have the ability to just withdraw them unless they get DEQ approval. So lots of indicia of finality under the APA, but it didn't appear to be convenient to think that. And, and so what happened in the district court was they actually split up our claims. So they said, these claims are not about a final action. And then they said, we couldn't do a programmatic attack. It was too broad. And then they also said we didn't have standing for our other claims. So, I mean, they really basically pulled from both sides of the deck because then when they did a summary judgment motion, they, they referred to it as final regulations. So, you know, we went to the Ninth Circuit and we had oral argument so in May. It, in other yeah, words, we appealed it in the Ninth yeah. Circuit. Right. And we had oral argument in May and that decision came out in July. Okay. And the Ninth Circuit in an opinion authored by Judge Bybee, basically just affirmed their opinions. The lower court's opinion? The lower opinion. court's opinion. But Judge Bybee's opinion really did go out of its way to be broad. For instance, it said, even people who live on the border and are experiencing a border crisis on their doorsteps don't have standing because it's unreasonable to think that a foreign national would make the decision to cross the border to get something like DACA when DACA doesn't apply to, to him. In other words, that DACA wouldn't have the environmental impact even of increasing the population right. because he said it's unreasonable to think yes. that extra people would come because right. of it, which is absurd, which obviously. Which is absurd. In oral argument, he really seemed to be saying that, well, policies don't matter unless you have an official policy that brings people in illegally and they know apply to them, it's not really a government action, which is absurd. And all of our case, what happened in the district court predates the Trump to Biden transition. So he was sort of closing his eyes to what was going on today when he wrote this, which he was able to because the facts were based on what happened during the Trump administration. But his general idea that the policies don't matter because there's, there's really no discretion. We have to let people in with asylum. There's not going to be a difference based on what the government decides. That's just absolutely belied what's happening right now. And in fact, I talked to one of my plaintiffs about their reaction to the decision, which I informed them of. And one of my plaintiffs, who's a rancher who lives on the border in Arizona, John Ladd, he said, In 14, we were probably getting probably 100 a day that they were apprehending on our ranch. And that went up through Obama's administration. And then when Donald Trump was elected, they were, it went down to about 20 a month. And then as soon as Biden got elected with the promise of amnesty to 11 million people that are already here, it, overnight, it went up to catching 50 a day. The smugglers themselves refer to as the invitation, Biden's invitation yes. to them, right? Yes. So the point is it belies the argument that these 
illegal immigration or amnesty measures could have no population effect anyway. Yeah. In other words, untrue on its face is what he's saying. It's untrue on his face. And then it was very interesting that he said, as a ruling, it's an unreasonable decision to come in based on past amnesty programs that don't apply to you specifically. The judge said that. The judge said that in his opinion. And, you know, I would say everything that's happening right now just shows that's downright crazy to think. So another thing he did, which was really very much against the whole ethos of NEPA, was he applied standing by teasing out one little thing and one other little thing. So, well, DACA doesn't do this. And their response is fine because the response is just about this detention center in Texas. So it's not related to any other people coming in in Arizona or New Mexico or elsewhere in the border. It has to be near the detention center they analyzed and decided had no environmental impact. In other words, for the plaintiffs to have standing. For the plaintiffs to have standing. So if you're in Arizona and there's a detention center in Texas, supposedly, it doesn't affect right. you. Right, it doesn't no affect right you. But our point was it's arbitrary and capricious to only look at one detention center in Texas. Now, that was in 2014. They haven't updated it since. It's very clear that it's not like. They filled the detention center in Texas, and that's it. It was over. So to get standing to even look at that environmental analysis and say, was it reasonable? He's saying you don't have standing to even look. And that's a kind of standing not applied in environmental cases because the point of NEPA is to look at all of your actions that work synergistically is, is how the courts put it. So if you have a lot of actions that work together, you can't just segment them out and say each little one has no environmental impact. You have to actually look at the effect of the different parts of what you do together. Now, if you look at what the Biden administration is doing now, you can see they all work together to increase immigration, and that is having a huge environmental impact. And furthermore, I mean, this isn't the way the Ninth Circuit applies NEPA standing. So another one of our plaintiffs, Ralph Pope, who has actually a small ranch in New Mexico and also is a retired Forest Service officer, he told me this. I worked for the Forest Service for almost 40 years in range and watershed and wildlife management function. And part of my duties in the later years was to deal with a lot of these lawsuits that were being filed here on the Gila National Forest. And the Gila National Forest was one of the forests in the nation that was probably sued the most over Endangered Species Act and, and NEPA cases early on in the environmental movement. And what I was involved in a lot of times was actually uh, taking the claims made by the litigant and for the Department of Justice attorneys kind of go through and write what they call the litigation report where I would take the claim and then based on my knowledge of what happened and whatnot, I'd kind of either affirm or, or deny the, the claim and, and give them the ammunition to to actually go through and defend the case. And a lot of times, I mean, the cases when you get to 
you know, taking them apart claim by claim and whatnot. I mean, you would see all these claims made in one case and and respond to them, and then the next case they would have the same claims and you'd respond to them and you'd get a total different decision by the court based on which case it was in, not on what the claim was or how the agency was defending it. So he said they just seemed to look at their desired outcome and... The court, in other the words, court in this case. The court just looks yeah, at the outcome right. and decides you have standing or you don't have standing. The Ninth Circuit to behave right. essentially lawlessly. What a surprise. Yes, yes. This was a George W. Bush judge. He's actually a pretty famous judge, Judge Bybee. I think it's important for us to realize that just because it's in a Republican judge doesn't mean they're going to be fair to populist concerns. This case isn't the end. We have another case going on which is new and is in another district and we're amending it right now and it actually does involve the Biden actions because now that they're happening it's possible to sue on them and furthermore the first state has actually brought a case too so the state of Arizona a few months ago brought its own NEPA case which was great to see and They just recently amended their complaint, and they actually added a claim under the Endangered Species Act as well, because another idea that I have been pushing in the last few years is that if the government takes an action that's going to affect a critical habitat of an endangered species, it has to consult with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And in fact, many of the amnesty actions especially really result in a terrible degradation of critical habitats. I mean, people like near the border. Near, in other near words. the border, yeah, right. people come right across. Also, widely population growth in various places is what endangers the critical habitat of many endangered species. Now, you can think that's that's too much for the government to have to do, or you could not, but that is the law, and they do have to do it in many other contexts. And again, just. As under NEPA, they, you know, the government just doesn't even think about doing it. So Arizona is, is now bringing that case as well as the NEPA case based on some of Biden's recent actions. And they have a different case for standing because under a case called Massachusetts versus EPA in 2005, the Supreme Court gave states a fairly generous grounds for standing to protect their environment. I think they said Massachusetts had standing because it would be affected by rising waters due to climate change and emissions, which is much more attenuated than anything I've brought up in in my cases, and certainly much more attenuated than anything Arizona has brought up. I've read their complaint. It pretty comprehensively lays out all the damages, all the many people who were coming. It points out the population growth. And they've actually just brought a preliminary injunction saying, you know, that that Biden's actions should be stopped until they can do an environmental impact statement, which because again, under NEPA, it's legal to do whatever you want. I mean, it's legal if it's otherwise legal under the law. You can do whatever you want, but you have to do an analysis first. An analysis includes looking at public comment, working with state and local officials, publishing it, letting people comment on that. So an analysis can be pretty lengthy. It doesn't have to be lengthy. 
What's the state now of their request for an injunction? Is yes. There, is there like some kind of so, ETA on when the judge will decide? No. So it's still in the middle of being briefed. They are also in the Ninth Circuit, and they filed it July 12th. The DOJ's opposition to their preliminary injunction is due August 12th. And the timing is interesting because our case came out when they had about three weeks left for the DOJ to write their opposition to the Arizona's preliminary injunction. I was surprised by how quickly our case came out in the Ninth Circuit. I would say it doesn't really apply to Arizona's case because the standing arguments are different. The actions are much more recent. Given that it was a case brought during the Biden administration, there's just there's a lot of differences. However, Judge Bybee's opinion was written so broadly and really went out of its way to say that, that actions are not going to be encouraging more people to come. It's interesting timing. So we'll, we'll see what happens with that. We'll see how heavily the DOJ relies on this opinion. And your reference to the DOJ, because obviously the Justice Department is def- Justice Department yes. lawyers are the ones defending yes. the with the government in any of these kind of cases. The Justice Department was under different management until January twentieth. Why do you think there wasn't more willingness to settle one of these cases? In other words, why did under the Trump administration they keep fighting these lawsuits? Well, the truth is, it was mostly settled by career staff. Okay, I would say. It's debatable whether many parts of the Justice Department were really under different management. Right. I think they should have settled it. I think it's meritorious, and therefore it should be settled. I mean, I think also the next Republican administration ought to use the CEQ's power to mandate that this is done voluntarily. This is exactly what NEPA was for. If NEPA was for anything— it was for something like this, because the point of NEPA, it was like, we want you to look ahead on the horizon, look before you leap, think about what you're doing, and don't work at cross purposes with different agencies. And that's exactly what doing a population impact statement would do. If you say, we're going to bring a million more people a year, a million and a half more people a year, we're going to open up the border, you have to think about what kind of infrastructure you're going to need to build. Schools will get overcrowded. There'll be more pollution, in, particularly in places like California, which is where the first case was. Water supplies are greatly straightened by the demand. California has water crisis pretty much all the time, and California has 40 million people living in it, and California has been losing domestic population for a very long time, but the population keeps growing because of foreign immigration. Now, the proper use of NEPA would be to think about what you're going to do. I mean, again, you have to live with the consequences. NEPA doesn't stop something, but the public needs to be informed of what's going to happen. Because that's kind of the main point here, in a Mm -hmm. sense, in demanding environmental analysis of immigration-related measures is, in a sense, transparency. It's trying to inform the public debate so that people can decide based on actual information instead of not knowing. Right, exactly. And it's actually, it's supposed to promote kind of a feedback between Congress and the people. 
everyone's supposed to understand what the agencies are doing. Part of the whole growth of the administrative state included checks on the administrative state. It was like, well, in the 60s, agencies were doing more and more and more. And there was a concern. Do they even know what they're doing? Does Congress even know what they're doing? Are Congress just passing delegations? At some point, the public needs to be informed. They have to be forced to look at what they're doing. It's interesting because one of the Biden administration's big bugaboos is climate change and also preserving wild space. Uh, so they they have this 30 by 30 plan, which means they want the federal government to take over and preserve 30% of United States land by 2030, something like that. It's very interesting because this is exactly what NEPA was about. Guess what? If you flood the population and yet you take away the land they can live in, the A, that goes completely against each other. B, that will really affect people's lives. Maybe their plan is that we'll all live in very high-density housing in big cities and we'll eat bugs for protein. But like, you know, look, if your plan is we want you all to eat bugs and live in high-density housing, I mean, that's not illegal. But NEPA says you have to tell the public that's your plan first. Right. So it's it's actually interesting because my sense is, and this maybe kind of fits into why a Republican judge seems to have been pretty hostile to the very idea of using NEPA in the context of immigration, is that a lot of Republicans, you know, view any kind of environmental regulation as some kind of imposition. And often they're right. I mean, sometimes it is. But the way you're describing it is kind of interesting. I really hadn't thought of it, is that NEPA, in a sense, is designed to rein in or yes. at least shine light on yes. the workings of the administrative state. In other words, it's an mm-hmm. anti-administrative state exactly. measure. And so, you know, it seems to me it's the kind of thing that whatever you think about specific environmental measures, whether it's a good idea to save the snail darter or whatever it is, that NEPA is something certainly a lot of Republicans should be zealously promoting precisely because it's a kind of a shining light on workings that people otherwise would not really yes, see. exactly. And there's so many times, especially in immigration, but not just in immigration, where the government just keeps secret what it's doing. I mean, for instance, the refugee program, they don't even publish the contracts they have with NGOs about the people that are going to be settled in local communities. Now, under NEPA, you couldn't do that. You would at least have to make it public and people would have a chance to express their thoughts on it. So, you know, it would definitely be a check. And Republicans are facing kind of a choice between populism or not populism. And I, and I think the behavior of the mainstream environmental movement, which has forgotten everything but climate change right now, and the way to deal with climate change is, is basically through globalization, you know, I think people have started to think of environmentalism as unpopulist. The first environmentalist president, I mean, we didn't call it environmentalist then, was actually Teddy Roosevelt, who was very much a populist. He cared about immigration, too. He cared a lot about assimilation. And do we really want people to decide immigration policy far away in the capital? Somebody lobbies for this. They get DHS to do this. You know, the people never have a say. Right. Well, yeah, absolutely. That's interesting. I actually 
I mean, I obviously knew about a lot of this stuff, but I actually, I think I got a new perspective on this, that the kind of thing the lawsuits are demanding is actually trying to promote checks on the administrative yeah. state. Well, thank you, Julie, for coming in. Julie Axelrod, Director of Litigation at the Center for Immigration Studies. There's a another lawsuit like this that's already been filed, and presumably there'll be others. And when there are developments, we will have you back, Julie. Thanks okay. for joining us. Thank you. For my closing commentary, I wanted to talk about something that happened recently on Capitol Hill. Those of you following the news will know that the Senate on Tuesday approved a massive infrastructure bill with more than $1 trillion in spending. As they say, a trillion here, a trillion there adds up eventually, of which $500 plus billion was for actual infrastructure, things like roads, bridges, high-speed internet connections, that kind of thing. And a lot of Republicans voted for the final version of the bill, something like 19, I think. The thing I wanted to talk about, though, was an amendment that was discussed last week. It was debated in the Senate. Most senators voted for it, but it didn't reach the 60-vote filibuster requirement, so it failed. In other words, the majority of senators voted for it, including some Democrats, but it didn't get enough votes. And what the amendment would have done is simply require that any of the companies getting contracts from this money, from this hundreds of billions of dollars in infrastructure money, use the E-Verify system. E-Verify, for those who don't know, is an online free system run by the federal government, which enables an employer to check whether the person he has hired is legally authorized to work. If you use it, you have to check all of your new hires. You can't just pick and choose. I'm going to check this guy, but not that guy. We here at the center have used E-Verify for many years. And what it does is you put in the name, social security number, and date of birth of the person. And it tells you whether those are real numbers, whether they match each other, and whether the person is authorized to work. So it checks with Social Security and Homeland Security databases. And it's a pretty common sense thing. It exists. It's been up and running for a number of years now. About half of all new hires already go through it, but only half because use of the E-Verify system is voluntary. And obviously, most of the illegal immigrants getting jobs are in the other half that are not screened through E-Verify. And what the amendment which was introduced by Senator Lankford from Oklahoma, would have done is required any of the companies getting contracts to build roads, bridges, whatever it is, to be using E-Verify for all their hiring, even if it's not on this contract. And it seems like, frankly, a pretty common sense measure. And senators and other politicians across the board have for years said that they're in favor of E-Verify. It's a good idea. They're all for it. It's the kind of thing that they're for because it doesn't target or arrest people who are illegal immigrants. It actually focuses more on the employer, making it harder for employers to hire illegal immigrants. Crooked employers are going to break the law anyway, but it enables legitimate employers to comply with the rules. And it's a less how should I put it, less police-oriented way of enforcing immigration law. We at the center have been writing about it for many years. We're all for it. You have to have 
regular police enforcement of immigration law as well, but it's vital to turn off the magnet of jobs. And in this case in particular, we are spending money, borrowing, frankly, printing money in the hundreds of billions for infrastructure purposes. It seems obvious that we should make sure that illegal immigrants are not benefiting from it, or at least doing everything we can to make sure that the people getting these jobs created by the infrastructure bill are legal workers, American citizens, legal immigrants, or frankly, anybody else with a work permit, because you can't pick and choose if a person's legally authorized to work. But the point is, legal workers would be the ones benefiting from this amendment. And yet, there were 45 Democrats who voted against it. All the Republicans voted for it, as well as five Democrats, three of whom are up for re-election next year, so they understand that this is something that's appealing to voters, and voting against it is going to be a problem. But 45 Democrats voted against it, one of whom was Dick Durbin. He's a senator from Illinois and is one of the Democrat side's most important spokesmen in the Senate on the immigration issue. And interestingly, and I would have to say, I think dishonestly, he said that he was voting against E-Verify because it wasn't good enough at screening out illegal immigrants. He said that, you know, only 1% of the people screened through E-Verify are identified as illegal immigrants. Even that's probably a little high. The 1% number, I think, is the ones who are flagged as having a problem some of whom are legal workers whose social security information is incorrect. So that actually highlights one of the services E-Verify provides because if social security doesn't have your right information, you want to know that when you're 25, not when you're 65. So it actually is a kind of a heads up for people that they need to go to social security and try to straighten it out so that social security has the right information. So anyway, the point is his objection was that there was red tape involved in E-Verify, and it wasn't worth it. It wasn't identifying enough illegal immigrants. It's a completely false critique. And Senator Durbin has been in this business long enough to know that what he was saying was false. The fact is that the reason relatively few illegal immigrants are identified by E-Verify is that illegal immigrants don't look for jobs in places that are using E-Verify. There's lots of restaurants and businesses like that that have stickers on the door that says, we use E-Verify. Illegal immigrants know what that sticker means, and they go to the next place down the street when they see it. Now, there are ways of getting by it. You can steal an identity, a fully formed identity of somebody who looks kind of like you and is about the same age. You can get around it. Nothing's perfect. But it's much harder to get around than the current required system, which is based on paper, which everybody has to use, which is where you fill out what's called an I-9 form, and it's completely Mickey Mouse. It doesn't do anything to effectively keep out illegal workers, whereas E-Verify does a pretty good job. I mean, the research has shown that it does, in fact, reduce the number of illegal immigrants in a state if the state requires E-Verify. So the fact is that this was an essential amendment. The majority of senators voted for it, even 10% of the Democrats, but apparently doing anything that would identify illegal immigration as a problem 
is something that, unfortunately, too many people in the Congress don't want to do. Even something as obvious and as consistent with the broader legislation as it is in this case, which is supposed to be creating jobs for Americans and spending enormous amounts of money to do it. Unfortunately, there were 45 Democrats in the Senate, including Joe Manchin, who is ostensibly more of a moderate by their standards, who voted to ensure that illegal immigrants could still get the jobs from the infrastructure bill that the Senate passed. The House still has to pass it, so the whole thing may not even happen. It may just fall apart conceivably. Even if it does, the vote on this amendment by Senator Langford to require E-Verify was a telling sign. And if you cannot vote even for something like this, it is fair to describe you, whoever voted against this amendment, it is fair to describe them as supporting open borders. Because you can say that you're not for open borders, but if you're unwilling to do even this kind of absolute minimum measure to see that immigration laws are complied with, then you really are, objectively speaking, in favor of open borders. That's it for this week. This is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of Center for Immigration Studies, signing off from Parsing Immigration Policy, and I hope you will tune in next week. Thank you.